This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome to the uh, Enrollment Resources Conference call. We're going to, uh, uh, the members here, the thought leaders within the company are going to beat up a, a specific topic as it relates to marketing, and that is how to build revenue uh, in a, uh, um, when there's a fully full employment economy. And um, Shane, you, uh, folks, this is my business partner, co-founder Shane Sparks. And Shane, um, you notice I said how to build enrollment, not to generate leads. Um, care to jump on that? Yes, yes. So what we've found over the years is that um, – during times like this, it, it, it kind of manifests first in lead flow. Like there's a decline in the amount of people in the kind of the market that exists that people are are seeking schools. So trying to build lead flow when there's full unemployment or full employment or near it, it's that's a tough exercise, and it's and it's and it can be a diminishing returns kind of exercise because you end up spending way more money than you need to uh, to find people that aren't there. So operationally, though, we can do things to tighten up to still make um, enrollment gains, but lead gen, uh, except for in a few cases we're going to talk about later, is is tough. So if your expectations are, hey, we're going to go generate a bunch more leads and that's going to get us full, uh, you probably need to be uh, temper those expectations. Interesting. So, you know, to that end, uh, you know, there's that old marketing saw that um, uh, 40% of a marketing initiative should be put toward aiming accurately at the pools of prospects. Uh, 40% should be uh, of your efforts should be aimed at improving and making your program offerings outstanding. And then only 20% is around things like social media or third-party lead generation or copywriting and the like. So I th- that might be an example of where somebody could really go in and make hay is by simply aiming at a more relevant target population and focusing on improving the offering. Um, you want to respond to that? Yeah. So that is really the nature of product, right? And that's the thing mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot over the years is, is do, do I have something worth buying? You know, that's the kind of fundamental question around it. And like in our own business, we've, we've certainly found that the more things we do to differentiate from competitors, the more we improve our product, the better value we offer, the, the more business we get, right? And and there's, there's, I think, a false belief that people can mark, market themselves out of product problems, right? Like that, that, that my force of will, my desire to go get more people interested in my business is enough if I'm just clever enough in, in how I – the turn of phrase or the ads or the, the tactics we use to market the business. If we're clever enough, we can somehow overcome product problems. And well, of course, the interesting case. thing there is that – you know, you can the, the branding people can say sweet words about an offering. People jump in. 
they're disappointed because that what was described and what is delivered is out of whack. And then unlike back in the old days, i.e. pre-2005, people jump on Google Plus and Yelp and they just rip the schools and those horrible reviews stay there. They don't go away, hey, Shane. Well, that's yeah, that's it. And so the, the, the social media has no expiry date, right, or those kind of the, the, the words that are spoken about you seem to stick around forever. And it's like, what's that adage, you know, it's, it's, uh, it takes uh, a lifetime to build a reputation and, then, and a minute to lose it. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of principle applies in this, in this area. So, so um, Sorry, Shane, continue. Pardon me. Well, I was just going to, I was going to ask, so, you know, what would be an example of a product improvement? Like, how, how do you have something that's worth buying? How, how, do you, how, how do you promote something that's really exciting for that prospective student that, that they're willing to um, make the time and money investment despite an abundance of, of jobs, even though the jobs might not be great jobs, they're there. That's a perfect segue to uh, one of our panelists, Tom King, who is one of the thought leaders at Enrollment Resources. And Tom, uh, prior to being with ER, you spent a number of years at a a vocational school, and you did exactly that. You focused on making your offering world-class. Do you you care to touch on a couple of things that you did in that experience? Yeah, uh, and a lot of it's it's you know, low cost uh, opportunities, but a couple of ways to really improve your program offering. Number one, get some industry partners or support. So, so bring in some brand name, industry recognized names and partner up with them for tools, equipment, training, uh, maybe even placement, some other things so that you can start to brand some, some great industry partners in education and improve the value and uh, perceived value of your program. Number one, so get almost like a sponsor for some of your programs or sections of your programs, uh, number one. Uh, number two, uh, more uh, certifications for that particular program. And they don't even have to be like state licenses and actual certifications. They can actually be, again, going back to some of those industry partners and having them certify phases of your training where a student gets a little certificate from that name brand company, uh, which you know, at least shows that they understood the material, had some extra value, uh, a nice resume piece uh, to it. So you know, some of those industry partners can be a, a, a tremendous way to improve the, the value of your program, some little certifications within the program, some industry partners, uh, and just uh, you know, improve the, the amount of hands-on and, and, and the training equipment. Very so uh, IT guys are good at that. They'll have Oracle certification, Microsoft certifications, and uh, and people will walk out of a one-year program with, in addition with half a dozen kind of um, company-specific certifications. Um, that adds so much. That's in, in marketing, they call that brand riding. You just ride these massive brands that people trust, like Oracle as an example, and um uh, you know, you're part of Oracle, therefore you must be okay kind of thing. So, Well, and it you know, strikes me that the benefit of this tight labor market is the employers are super motivated right now 
to, to for those kind of partnerships because they're still they're struggling to get people too, right? There's more. My understanding there's more posted jobs than than candidates in the U.S. right now, right? So the yeah. employers are highly motivated. The HR people are highly motivated to partner with anybody that can get labor in front of them. And so whereas maybe those partners, if you sought them out in the past, you couldn't find them or they wasn't important to them now, this is a time of leverage to bolster that roster of really name brand employers that you connect with. Now we're, we're seeing some very um, cool partnerships. Um, University of Phoenix with the, uh, the Canadian and U.S. military as an example. Um, Stryer University have uh, uh, a, an education deal with uh, I think Chrysler. Um, Arizona State University has a really sweet um, education training program for employees of Starbucks. And so these are partially funded out of the HR departments at Starbucks. For instance, in the, in the uh, Canadian military, if, you're, you've, if you've been in there for 20 years, they'll pay for 80% of any post-secondary education. So, you know, we're relying on advertising, but there are these massive pools of revenue that are sitting within corporations that are not being used for training purposes. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what you guys are getting at. Um, well, sure. Even in you know, with vocational schools too, like uh, Massage Envy is an example. They've been growing like crazy, um, particularly on the East Coast, right? And desperate for massage therapists. So very amenable to partnering with massage therapy trainers because they need the labor. Or supercuts in the cosmetology sector, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, desperate. I think they considered setting up their own training because they can't get enough labor from uh, beauty schools, right? So, yeah. those and, and you know those are two big brand examples. But um, uh, Tom, in your school, would you you guys partnered with some? It was automotive, right? And there was some huge names that you were able to bring into that. Yeah, uh, everybody from you know BMW, Edelbrock, and the racing. So every program had. Whoever the top gun in the industry was, that's who we went after um, and tried to get a, a partnership with them where it would really benefit them because the students, whatever the students are most familiar with, that's what they're going to buy when they graduate. Whether you're in cosmetology, automotive tools, or anything else, whatever they practice and, and train with, that's what they're most likely to buy when they get out. So it's a win-win uh, to get a partner to help donate their name training equipment, training aids, training manuals. Uh, and we had Kawasaki, Honda, Suzuki, Yamaha, you name it. Uh, we, we brought them all in, uh, names on classrooms, names of certain sectors of the building, academies, whatever. Great opportunity. Right, so you have the, the BMW Academy wing in the school, which is, sounds, is super cool anyway. So you're touring a student, and they see the BMW logo, and this is that wing or this, the, the, the Honda classroom right it's yeah. cool that 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 tells a really compelling story about the school because it's not just some little school it's uh it's some really big name brand companies attached to that and so right yeah. now there's unique it's a unique opportunity for two reasons one the employers are going to be more amenable to it just because of the tight labor market two we got to tighten up as a sector and so the, the the projects that you've been avoiding that have been too low on the to-do list are now going to get more important because, you know what, we're not going to go be able to just spend money and buy leads to solve enrollment problems right now. 
You know, there's, uh, and if you want to play big on this idea, folks, is uh, you go by sector. And so I'll, I'll do a quick, uh, a quick example. You have an IT, uh, you have many, many IT programs in, let's say, Chicago, the Chicago area, okay? And there are grand schools there, and then there are uh, online, online schools, and it's very crowded. So part of this is positioning your school. So what you can do, you guys, in this example, is you have an IT, what we call a vanilla IT associate degree, we'll call it, with a specialty in agribusiness. So agribusiness in the Chicago area would be uh, Monsanto, Cargill. Uh, there's a couple hundred subsidiary companies that feed those giants. And so when you can run, say, out of your um, career services department, a participation program on the jargon of the industry, um, how the industry works, the politics of the industry, uh, all the, the, the kind of the uh, amenity information relating to the agribusiness, and then you layer that over top of your vanilla IT associate degree, what happens, you guys, is it sits as one line item in a person's resume. And so now career services will go to all of these companies, the agribusiness companies, and say, we have agribusiness IT grads that you should shortlist. And then what happens is you go back to the uh, HR departments and go, you have loads of people you'd love to hire that are undertrained, and you start working back-channel deals. So as Shane has said in the past, you want to zig everybody when everyone else is zagging. Work backwards and uh, work with the HR departments. Work with companies to back-channel training uh, into your programs. And that you guys can really increase revenue, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say there, Shane? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, next, you know, the other thing you guys we've we've uh, talked about is um, paid search is a big deal. Um, it's a real elusive uh, marketing tactic, if you will, that you can actually get right. And so getting relevant prospect pools to convert and turn into students at a reasonable cost. And um, there are some little tricks you can do that can squeeze out more, uh, more uh, higher lead flow through paid search without killing the bank. And so we're very fortunate to have on the call Ryan Emery. And uh, Ryan is one of the two people along with Tammy Miles who were invited to Google's headquarters last year to um, sit in on the, the whole new direction that Google's heading with paid search. Uh, there were 40 people invited, and Ryan was one of them. So, Ryan, you, uh, you're there on the call? Oh, yes. Hello, everyone. Oh, so, Ryan, give folks an overview on if they're using paid search in their marketing, what are a couple of the things they can do to squeeze out more leads and lower costs by just being – kind of more surgical in how they do their campaigns. Uh, how about it? Yeah, well, absolutely. What, what we find as we review other or new clients may come in with existing AdWords campaigns is one fundamental issue is the geo-targeting where we find that 
most of our conversion comes from within, geez, even as small a radius as 25 miles around the given location of, of any of the schools. Uh, and you'll see that any campaign running that doesn't keep that geo-targeting tight, you can imagine that you're paying for ads to run. I mean, I've seen one here recently that is in eastern Canada that's running ads here on the west coast, uh, unbeknownst to them. So as an example, you can imagine the leakage there in an account uh, and in a budget where someone is running an ad where there's absolutely no chance or a very low likelihood of anyone converting, obviously, that isn't within driving uh, proximity to the school. So certainly that's, that's a part of what we do. We keep the geotargeting extremely tight. So, so Ryan, so you've gone and, uh, um, and geotargeted around bus stations and train stations. Did you care to? Uh, well, yep. We can get as tight as doing, we can get down to postal codes. And we can, draw, we can draw radiuses within a kilometer or so. So that's, that's as, as granular as, as AdWords will allow. But even at that, I mean, that's quite amazing when you consider the days, I don't know, just some years ago, they didn't even offer that kind of a radius targeting. I, at some point, AdWords was as primitive as you have to run something like by state. So it, it's certainly tightened up here over the years. Another um, great area is considering your uh, ad scheduling. I don't even know if some of our clients know or if, if the general masses understand that you don't have to run ads in Google through the evenings. Uh, there's no reason to have your ads running between, let's say, you know, midnight and 6 a.m. Uh, as well with some of our clients, if they don't choose to, if they don't have someone at the phone, well, then we wouldn't run ads perhaps maybe on a Sunday or maybe not on a Saturday morning from 8 in the morning till noon when most people are either out with the family or taking the dog for a walk or whatever it may be. So this is another place where you can find out that those small tweaks can really make a difference over a 30-day period where you're not, you're not leaking ads or budgets uh, during these times where it's fairly unlikely that you'll find uh, conversion. And then you're, you've also spent time, Tammy and yourself, with... Um you know, this, this jargon term called a long-tail keyword, which is really uh, more, more accurate, accurately described as a, like a sentence. Um, what the heck is a long-tail keyword? Because that can help with lead flow, hey? Well, sure. And, and well, uh, yeah, what a long-tail keyword would be if someone said, it, let's suppose someone was searching for an HVAC school in Maine, uh, that in itself is already four keywords. Now, as far as you know, your common search, the, for the most part, people are typing in two and three word searches. So by the time you're bidding on a keyword sequence that's four and five uh, keywords long, there's, there's two benefits there. One, there's very little competition if, if our competitors aren't thinking this way as well. And number two, by the time you've got a keyword that's that or a keyword combination that's that specific and that long, uh, again, with there being very little competition, the cost per click on those keywords are, are, is extremely low comparatively to a two-word keyword search. So, yeah, hey, definitely I, another spot there to win. Yep. Hey, Greg, can I jump in for a sec? Yeah, please. So in that example, just for the people on the call, in that example, so let's say it's an HVAC program. If you're advertising HVAC as just a keyword, right, that's one of the keywords you're bidding on, what yeah, you exactly. also do is in, 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 inadvertently you're competing with 
every person that supplies HVAC services, right? So and the majority of the traffic is going to be somebody who's looking to get an air conditioner fixed or their, or their furnace fixed, right? Right. Which yep. they're not candidates to go to school. And so these, the benefit of these, these longer tail keywords is that you filter out traffic that's actually not traffic, that it's all related to training. And we exactly. see a lot, we've got campaigns that come in that are poorly optimized where, you know, they've stuffed it with these general keywords and sure there's a ton of traffic, but it's, yeah. it's all garbage yeah. and it's all wasted money. Is that, that yeah. Ryan, that's fair? That is absolutely right on the money, Shane. You can imagine how many related searches there may be for something, you know, with the term HVAC in it. In fact, I can pull reports that would show all kinds, I and mean, you wouldn't believe the things that people search that may contain that word. They certainly don't qualify as being someone that might be interested in going to school. Might as well. Right, so it's like eating Taylor um, Swift. It's like yeah. eating. <laughs> it's like eating at McDonald's three times a day, every single day. You're eating food, but it's low nutritional value. Hey. I guess you can look at it that way. Sure. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna switch. We're gonna switch from um, high tech to high touch now, you guys. So, most schools they get all, you know, worried when the the unemployment rate goes from. 8% to 4% or what have you. And it's really at the scheme of things, uh, it's, it's just they're playing with just a, a 4% slice of the market. When you think about it, if, if unemployment goes from 8% um, to 4%, you just lost only 4%. And what we see a lot of schools doing is they don't look at the people who are already working. Um, that are just feeling not so good. And, of course, the people who are working, that's like 96% of the population. But Well, if you're taking out, like, the retired people and what have you. But it's the majority of the, the market. And, Shane, you went and took an initiative around um, uh, what really motivated people and – I guess what we landed on was the key to uh, getting connected with people who are working. It's a massive pool of people. You want to kind of have given away what you're going to say, but go. No, sure, that's fine. So, we, yeah, we had, we had done, we had pulled the data set of 125,000 um, prospective students that had completed uh, the career readiness quiz that is that we one of the the tools that's powered in our virtual advisor software. So we we we've got it's about 100 schools using it and had pulled a sample of over the last year to to, to try to understand both motivations and what the what the situation is. And so what we found is about a third of people or sorry, two-thirds of people were working. Right? So they're they're working, a third aren't working of those prospects that had had um gone through this thing. However, See, that, that slays a sacred cow right off the top because you would assume that only people who are unemployed are out looking for new work, but you're saying no. Oh, yeah, no, 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 the, the, the two-thirds, it was 65-point-something percent, so it's almost right on the money there. They're working, but of those that are working, uh, it was 92%, I believe, were either ambivalent, it's, you know, my job's okay, or my job sucks. Right, they're unhappy, hmm. and so the the sales proposition isn't so much get back to work, 
as it is, get get working at something that you like doing. Right? Get your lousy yeah. job and get a better job. So really the key word is feeling fulfilled about yourself. Well, and that was that was what was super fascinating about this is that so we've got, you know, two thirds working and the majority of which are unhappy, right? Which makes sense. That's why they're on mm-hmm. a school website or or evaluating. But the number one motivator in all cases for all schools was fulfillment. That was the that was the goal. I want a career where I feel fulfilled. And it manifested in two different ways. Um, for for male dominated programs like you know HVAC or or automotive where it's the majority of the population are male, um, it manifested in in uh, money, right? So they want fulfillment, and the fulfillment comes through providing wage increases, you know, being able to um, provide for a family or in an anticipation of a family. Right, so the, the the kind of primitive provider instinct is what so that the, fulfillment. The old-fashioned way of uh, viewing men really hasn't disappeared. No, I, I don't believe it has. No, I don't think so. But you can politicize it however you want, but you know, we, we deal in reality in marketing. For women, or for I should say, female-dominated programs would be more like Allied Health kind of programs. Um, it was it was making a difference. So the, the 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 path to fulfillment comes through connection, making a difference, social impact, personal relationships. That's the, that's the fuel of that fire, right? Now, the third one, you know, re- respective. So the male dominated programs, it was it was fulfillment through money and then through making a difference that factored in. But the money was the path to making a difference. For the female-dominated ones, it was uh, fulfillment through making a difference, and then money came a short, you know, was was a close second to that. So it's still, you know, those are the those are the things that are driving most um, buying decisions around going back to school. And it's not so much um, am I working, not working, as it is uh, how do I get more gratification or fulfillment or how do I feel successful or happy, accomplished, achievement? Like those are the words that have the most emotional impact. Okay, so I have a couple of ideas for micro-campaigns. Given what you've just said and given what Ryan's just said about hyper-geotargeting. So we know that a lot of people come to massage school who come from an office environment who just hate being in an office and just rotting. So what you do is you go to that highly dense um, downtown area where all the office buildings are. You geotarget around uh, the major office buildings, and then your ad is something to the the tune of, hey, uh, sick of rotting in an office, try massage therapy as a career. Click here. That could be a little, like a little nugget campaign, hey? Um, another one is um, draw geotargeting around lecture halls. We know that f- 50 to 60 percent of people in those big lecture halls don't finish school, uh, and we know that 80 uh, percent of the people in the big lecture halls in community colleges don't finish school in terms of an associate degree. They leave; they just disappear. So, why not run a target around your local community college and say? Um, sick of those big, gross lecture halls and 
want to do something fun with your life, la, la, la. Um, consider the world of beauty. Click here. And what will happen is 80% of those people who are going to quit, they're going to see those ads, and they're going to see them while they're, they're floating through waiting for that big lecture on Psychology 101. Those are two little goofy ideas, but yeah. that's what you can do with what you're talking about, Shane, is people who are feeling unfulfilled in wherever they're at, uh, combined with using the, uh, the technical surgical aspects of, say, paid search. Interesting, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's, it's, it's really, you know, part of this tightening up idea is, is communicating value better. Right, and we do mm-hmm. it through actually having more value, which is product or program. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we can do it through the the tactics we're using, like you know, being efficient and paid search. But really, the story you tell has a huge influence on whether somebody kind of emotionally buys into the story, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, um, inside of that. You know, I keep thinking of the uh, the Einstein quote about how he failed a thousand times to get to his inventions, and that the the joy in his work was in the the constant failure. And um, so, one way to create tremendous improvements in revenue when there's full employment is to turn, make your marketing a testing lab. So, um, we know, on average, when we take on a website, we improve. What is it, Shane? Three out of 100 additional people will turn into a lead. And most people go three, that big deal. But when three is against uh, the baseline of three, that makes it six. That's double, right? So speak speak quickly to the the leverage of of split testing, and then we're going to have Sasha jump on. Right, yes. Well, so Sasha Tide is uh, one of our developers, and she is in charge of our, of our A-B testing. So, uh, so she, um, you know, as a team, we do it. We've got a testing committee, but a team to come up with testing ideas, and then Sasha's job is to implement them, measure the results, try to figure out what we're learning from them, and figure out what can be applied to uh, our, the schools we work with. Um, recently we did an analysis of kind of a before and after. And so we looked at all the clients we've had in the past couple of years, um, their, the conversion rates on their websites before and after. And the before, the average was 2.78%. So then by conversion rate in this example, we mean you got people, unique visitors come to a website. So you get people at your website, a visitor, and they're having a look and on average, 2.78% of them did something. They filled, filled out some kind of form, made some kind of inquiry. So the 0.78 was uh, like a short person maybe, hey? <laughs> the after, so doing our good work, which is fueled by the testing and the things that we've tested and passed and the things we understand that are effective at helping schools convince more of those unique visitors to make an inquiry, the after was 6.02%. So that's an improvement of uh, a little over 3%. So and as you said, so it's three extra leads per 100 people. If you get 1,000 people to your website a month, that's an extra 30. If you get 2,000, that's an extra 60. If you get 3,000, you get the idea. So 
this is, and earlier we talked about, hey, you know, more leads is not a realistic goal. This is the one exception to that condition, right? Because they're already coming to your website. So well, to, that, uh, to that point, perfect segue to Sasha. Sasha, there's a, what you call a boring test that pulled really well. Why don't you just give a quick overview of what you did and what happened? Yeah, um, for sure. So um, around any given time, we have about 10 to 15 tests running on average. Um, the ideas for most of these tests actually come from insights uh, from past tests, and those could be failures or winners, um, usually from failures. So we'll have a failure, and that will generate an insight for the next test, which will be a winner. Um, an insight that we've recently been exploring is that prospects um, who are shopping for education don't necessarily like to feel as if they are being marketed to. Um, they want to feel as if they're being helped. And that came from um, a, the failure of a previous test. So like big colorful CTAs and flashy forms aren't always the most effective way to communicate with these types of consumers. Um, so one of the most simple tests we've ever implemented that plays on this insight was surprisingly successful. Uh, it added conversion opportunities for prospects in a natural, non-disruptive way that flowed with the content of the page as opposed to flashed banners or uh, made buttons bigger or um, made pop-up forms. Um, and this simple little test uh, increased our clients' conversion rates anywhere from 30 to 110%, and that's across the board for 35 different clients. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. so, all, so, Sasha, all we did was instead of, of a big, hey, fill me out kind of thing, we just, uh, just put some links inside the body copy of the, of the, can you describe what it looked, we don't have visuals, so we just to describe how it was executed. Yeah, so just within the uh, text of the body copy, um, in a lot of cases it would say like, not sure if, if this school is right for you, come and book a tour, and book a tour would be a link, or get more info now. And it was just very natural way of adding conversion opportunities within um, the text. And, and those links were just a little uh, uh, hyperlink, it, and it would, then it yeah. would bring up an inquiry form or bring up the book a tour form. Exactly, yeah. And where did we put those on the pages? Well, um, which pages and where, and where? Well, I usually would put them on program pages, mm -hmm. um, and it would kind of depend on wherever it just it felt the most natural to implement them. So on a lot of clients, I would put them underneath the uh, start dates, um, and then some other clients, I would put them right underneath the testimonials. And those are the two best places where, um, yeah, they were the most effective. Right, that. so the, pros the, the that unique visitor, that person that's come to the website, they've made their way to a program page. Hey, I'm thinking about being a, uh, a medical office assistant. And I, and I read it, and then, hey, here's some start dates that are coming up. Right, mm -hmm. so I've, I'm interested because it's okay, this is the – you know, when the opportunities are going to present. And then right below that, just a simple, hey, the best way to learn to know if this is right for you is to uh, book a tour or request more information. And, uh, and then the prospect, you said between 30 and 120% more likely to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Click on it, fill it out, and that lead gets submitted. Is that right? Yeah. It, yep. It was pretty crazy how successful it was, <laughs> just that simple little thing. Well, and, and the, the technical effort to implement that is very low. 
probably the lowest of any test we've ever implemented. <laughs> you just basically have to know how to use Word, hey? Basically. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a lot of it. Yeah. Huh. Now, here's a cool thing about testing you guys is that you can um, uh, take testing, uh, direct response testing, and bring it into, say, as an example, the admissions or the career services department. Um, here's a quick example of how that could work. When admissions reps are making outbound phone calls and they're leaving messages, uh, that is essentially a radio ad. That's a radio ad with an audience of one person. So if you accept the notion, the premise, uh, then what you can do is you can use the best practices that Sash and Shane were speaking to, and you can apply them to the nature of the message you're leaving uh, on the phone, i.e. your radio ad. And through trial and error, on average, you can get five more people to phone you back per hundred than you were if you were just sort of mindlessly leaving messages. So, Scott, um, five out of a hundred is, it doesn't seem like much, except if you accumulate um, like a 5% improvement on, what, a thousand phone messages in a month that are being left. It, it becomes quite astounding, doesn't it? Yeah, especially when you equate it to a start. You know, if you get if you're getting that you know that type of return, then that can equate to let's say one start a month or one more enrollment a month. And if your tuition is fifteen thousand um, dollars, you know, twelve in a year, which may not sound like a lot, but uh, hey, that's an extra one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in revenue. That's uh, and that's per rep, right? Yeah, uh, depending on how many reps you have, certainly if you've got. One rep or five reps, five reps is almost a million dollars in uh, revenue that was leaking from, you know, just leaving, t testing a voice message. And you can take that one step further with uh, texting as well. Uh, texting is very effective. Most schools will send only one text. Well, if you A, B, and C test your text messages and find out which one is most effective, Again, that could mean another one, two, three, four, five responses uh, on your text messages as well. You know, first contact generally is pretty poor in a lot of schools, um, whether it's a phone call, whether it's uh, email or whatever, but it's generally pretty poor. And that's where a lot of schools are missing uh, opportunities, you know, to convert those contacts into appointments, which will turn into an interview, which hopefully will turn into an enrollment and start. So, yeah, I would, I would challenge everybody on the phone to shop their own schools. You know, fill out an opt-in form on, the, on their website. See how long it takes for a response. Uh, call the school or have somebody else call the school and, uh, you know, pretend you're an interested student and see what the contact is like. See what the experience is like. Um, you may pull your hair out after the call, but, hey, it still gives you that insight into where your lost opportunities are. That's interesting. So, Tom, you know, um, we you you oversee our uh, scorecard side of our business and uh, our um, mystery shopping side of our business. And and what we did was we pulled some research on first point of contact mystery shops by way of the phone. And um, man, uh, we took we took a whole pile of them and and did an aggregate average so this is anonymous but here are the stats that i'd like you to speak to uh 
only half of the admissions reps made any kind of an attempt to ask any kind of juicy questions to create a connection with somebody on the phone versus some crappy transactional process. Only 45% asked for a cell phone uh, to get anchor the phone number so that they can call them back later. And only 65% asked the prospective student to come in for a visit or in, in the case of an online school, to have a second meeting on the phone. Now, somebody like Shane Sparks, who's overseeing a marketing campaign, when he sees those stats, he goes absolutely crazy because all of, there's, call it 40% of that marketing budget that he's been nurturing has just been burned or flushed down the toilet because of just lazy habits. Tom, you want to speak to that there, bud? Absolutely. Uh, well, we spent the last two months uh, with all of our enrollment resources clients uh, spending time on appointment setting. So last month and again uh, this week, uh, we really went through appointment setting and the, and the keys to doing that and really becoming more efficient uh, is, is, is the key in, time, in times like this to, to get the most out of your budget, as you said, Greg. And you know, 50% of reps failing to qualify, I mean, it's, there's questions to ask, proper questions to ask, and what we've heard on many of those mystery shops is just a, you know, throwing up on the, uh, on the prospect of just a bunch of features and great things about your school and, and not even finding out anything about the prospect or what they're interested in and making a connection. And we know people buy from people they trust. So establishing that trust up front is, is critical. And not asking for the cell phone number. Yeah, you got a number. Maybe it's the cell. Maybe it's not. Verify it. Um, and some people don't even ask, you know, especially the front desk, before we connect you with admissions, uh, can I at least get your name and phone number in case we get disconnected? And then the admissions rep should also be gathering the email and verifying that that's a cell or not so that we have ways to, to nurture and do drip campaigns and so forth. You know, gathering that – stuff is, is, is key. You spent the money up front to generate these leads and marketing uh, on in the sales end. We're, we're kind of dropping the ball and, and not allowing marketing to, to really help us and work together. Uh, and then that last piece, Greg, that you mentioned, you know, the, the large majority of calls, nobody asks for a follow-up appointment or to schedule an appointment. It's just, here's the info. Great. Have a great day. As opposed to even if they don't set an appointment, you know, one of the things that, that we've been teaching you know, is, well, then set an appointment to follow up on that uh, appointment setting call to see if you can set one then. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, don't, you know, I want to think about it, I want to do this or that, and hopefully you can handle that objection and still set an appointment. If not, and you are sending them something, set a date in stone, hey, two days from now, 6 o'clock, 6.30, 6.47, whatever it is, I'm going to, you know, let's get back in touch and let's review the information together and I'll answer any questions you have at that point. Set a yeah, and then you say, if you don't uh, have any questions, it'll be a 30-second phone call. And what happens is you get to, um, the people that traditionally do this, hey, you guys, is um, highly analytical people and they just want to slowly absorb the information and they're not ready to make immediate commitments to coming in for a, a visit as an example. So so I guess really what 
Scott, we'll just have you speak to Tom's point there. What what you guys are really kind of saying here is that sure your lead flow can go down, but if you can get some best practices established in the first point of contact area, you can have a higher visit rate. And as an example, you can actually raise revenues and have lower lead flow. Absolutely. If you you know, getting back to your point before, Greg, if you if each rep set two extra appointments a week, even if you have one rep in the school, that's a hundred a year. Fifty uh, percent of those are going to show up, and probably forty percent of those are going to enroll. That's another twenty students just by setting two extra appointments a week by capturing the information, asking for the appointment, having a good phone dialogue, which again brings another point. Every school has to take a look at their business hours and figure out what happens when somebody calls at 7 o'clock at night and wants information about the school. Chances are they get a voice message, a voice machine, and they hang up. Again, I'm willing to bet that each and every school is losing at least two leads a week due to they because they're not open for business and they have no facility to capture that information, whether it's a live person answering it answering service, again, two missed leads a week translates to 100 a year, 10% conversion. That could mean another 10, 12 students as a result of capturing those calls coming in when nobody's there to answer it. Yeah, the phone service, who's calling, uh, is uh, they say that 61% of prospects that are met with voicemail hang up. So, you know, again, Marketing guru Shane Sparks has got this great campaign going. They're phoning at 11 at night. They're met with voicemail. All that good work is flushed. So, yeah. Now, listen, folks, um, a couple of you might have some questions for all these smart people on the, that are sitting on the panel. And so we've set aside a bit of time if anybody has any clarifying questions from what you've learned in our uh our uh, our little talk today. Now, while people are getting their courage up to hit star six, Shane, um, you've got the last word on our our call today. Um, what's the theme that that comes up for you in listening to all this stuff? Well, I think this this is kind of a blessing, is what it is, because during more difficult times. It forces us to, to address things that have been sliding that we haven't been addressing, right? You've got to kind of do a, an inventory of, okay, yeah. what, what, what are we doing now? What should we be doing? And, uh-huh. and often what happens at talks like this, like a workshop or whatever, you present these things, hey, you've got to answer the phone, right? Which is a ba- it's like a 101, admissions 101 thing, uh, and, it, and it drives everyone nuts, but people they're not tracking it so they don't notice it and they've got maybe they got call tracking but they haven't listened to the calls in a while and it forces that um, effort to kind of reevaluate okay what what are the things we know we should be doing that we're not doing or that have let slide like we had this exact situation happen with the client recently right they're not hitting their numbers Mm -hmm. we're generating a lot of leads but they're not hitting their numbers so listen to some audio and well they're blowing it at the front end a lot. Oh, and wow, there's a lot of calls that are unanswered during business hours, right? So it's like a, like a, pin, a pinhole in a balloon, eh? 
the pinhole in a balloon, and it's just maddening. But, uh, you know, during boom times, you don't notice it because you're enjoying the bounty. Well, if the bounty is at risk, it forces you to, um, it forces all of us to tighten up a little bit. So, which, which is a really good exercise for any business at any time anyway, right? That, that kind of sharpening the saw, um, uh, let's look at our core systems and make sure we're actually doing the stuff we know we should be doing is important. So it's now, important. Now ad, yeah. ad agencies hate to hear this message because they make their money off of selling new websites and convincing people to spend gobs and gobs of money on media buying. And what you're saying is, shit, that doesn't have to be. You can hold your, your reserves and just get smart. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Do the yeah. stuff you know you should be doing. And to that end, we have a wonderful tool, that quick assessment tool. What do you, what do you think about uh, offering that one up? What a great idea. So, folks, um, we have this tool called the quick assessment that is done by way of a screen share and a, and a phone call. And it, there are 40 items that you can assess on how you do in relation to best practice. And um, I think for the first five people that text, not phone, but text in at 250-391-9494, that's 250-391-9494, we'll just spend a good hour or two with you and really isolate for you some specific things that you can go after. So think of it like just some free high-level consulting. So if you want to do that, just text right now, and we'll get back to you uh, if you win. And um, I think it's question time, you guys. So does anybody on the call, I know there's about 180 people. Um, we may have done a great job of explaining things, uh, but sometimes people have questions. So if you have a question, press star six, state your first name, and ask your question. So we'll just wait for a sec. Anybody want to do that on the call? Hello? Oh, maybe? No? No, you, you know you... Audience oh, there we go. There's a courageous <laughs> person. What, what <laughs> you, it's, it's Christy, and um, I'm asking on this question on behalf of Eve. Okay. When speaking about working with HR, you mentioned the idea of working backward. Can you elaborate on that? I'll take a crack at that. Um, the, the moment a student... The student is a prospect. Once they become a student, they become your product. And uh, school is only as strong as the uh, quality of the graduates that are work their way into the, the labor force. If HR people find that graduates of a school are crummy, then that school is crummy. And uh, therefore, it, it, a lot of things weaken through the, uh, the, the branding, the value, the positioning of the school. So you go and you uh, do a good job on your offering, make it really relevant, and we gave you some ideas at the beginning of the call. And then HR become really heavily reliant on wanting to work with your graduates. Now, the extension of that is for every person that they hire, there are 500 people that they love to hire but can't because they're lacking technical skills. And that's just sitting in those HR files. And... Um, what you can create are back-channel training agreements. Um, well, you, before Shane and I started the business, I was at University of Phoenix. 
I brokered a deal with the Canadian military, and um, and so they basically the mili- Canadian military would pay for 80% of the tuition to University of Phoenix for their employees, the families, and the service people to go and get a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in something. They didn't care what it was. So for every HR um, HR department, there's a huge training pool that never gets used. And so to go sit with those people and create a, a, a back-channel arrangement or a reverse engineering kind of an arrangement, man, that's, uh, they're either, they either want to up-train existing staff or they want to train, send referrals for prospective potential employees. So... Anyone want to – Tom, you, you've done a lot of work in this area in the past. Do you want to weigh in? Uh, I mean, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, partner up with those HR companies uh, and those employers that are hiring your students and make sure it's a two-way street. You're providing students to them, but make sure they're providing those resumes of people that they liked but needed or lacked the technical training to, to be hired. Uh, and if they'll pass those your way and you'll give them a little – uh, priority maybe on hiring, you know, awesome. It's a great lead gen tool. Uh, it's a great idea. And those leads convert at a very high rate. So, I uh, hope Eve. Hopefully that you can actually you can actually your name dropping now and saying hey, so you know, make sure that the company, you know, is is all for that, or make sure the company even initiates that, and you can name drop. Hey, X Y Z company provided me your name as a, a great candidate that. Uh, you know, might be, you know, might really benefit from some training here. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, name dropping is awesome. Yeah, brand writing. Yeah. Now, uh, anybody else on the call? Um, if you want to ask a question. I have a few more questions. Yeah, okay, fire away. Shannon um, says, is asking for thoughts on using Facebook versus Google for lead gen. She's noticed the quality of leads has gone down significantly since their marketing department moved to a majority of spend on Facebook. Yeah, that's a call. That's a comment for Shane and Ryan. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it first. And Ryan, if you're still on, you can speak to it too. Um, the, the difference yeah. between Google and Facebook is it's like the difference between the forward section of the newspaper and the classified section. If you can, if you're old enough to remember when newspapers were actually part of the marketing mix, um, Google they're searching for something, right? It's active. It's like a classified ad, or it is a classified ad essentially. And so, so there's more um, direct connection between intention and that lead. With Facebook, you're kind of opportunistically getting people between the cat photos that maybe sort of might kind of be interested in what you have to offer. Is that right? Is that kind of a fair? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's certainly one one element of it. I, when you're done, Shane, I, I'll certainly want to touch. No, on go go ahead. Yeah, jump on it. Well, the only thing that I'd like to maybe put forth is that. I think that a lot of people see, and there's a, a misconception about Facebook in general, where a client or anyone in any given industry may, I don't know what metric they may be looking at, whether it's website traffic or these bizarre terms uh, like engagements, that would have it that there's a misconception that the Facebook traffic is in some way converting better uh, than Google 
Whereas once we kind of peel a layer of the onion to realize that no, in actuality, the given client may have seen a boost in their website traffic, but they have no real validation or means to, you know, nose to nose compare, well, how many dollars did you spend at Facebook and how many times did you see a tangible lead form filled out and qualified where you could crunch the numbers on conversion and say with confidence that our Facebook campaign has created X number of new leads in a given month. What I see with Facebook is very commonly you you get a boost in traffic or you see these numbers like engagement, but then we get in there and dig in and realize, well, you guys, can you really show me the leads that you, you got from Facebook? Are you running a form? Are they pointing to a landing page as we, we do specifically for the Google paid search? And what I find is most often uh, clients will find out that after we do some digging, they go, oh, I thought our Facebook stuff was doing so much better. And then you realize, well, actually, I don't see any leads or a very few actual leads that were generated from Facebook. Lots of traffic, lots of likes, lots of interest, but very few leads. So really, I guess the key with Facebook, uh, what I've always thought is, uh, you know, Facebook is its own environment or ecosystem. What the game is is to scrape the traffic out of the Facebook ecosystem and drive it to your website so as to kind of like snip the string between the, the two. Maybe I'm not making sense. Yeah, or, or I guess one could argue what, what I would want to do is go face-to-face with a, with a solid lead form as we do with our landing pages and really direct that Facebook at something. If you're just directing it to the home page of your website, then you really have no tangible means to justify how many leads you got or not. Unless you use like a remarketing campaign, once you scrape uh, a thousand people out of Facebook into your website, and then work remarketing with them. That's an idea. Yeah. Anyway, I guess what I'm hearing you two guys say is that, you know, Google if at all possible. Um, and yeah, and listen, I, we would love for Facebook to work, right? Because, yeah. you know, there's a heavy reliance on Google. So right now, it would be great if Facebook actually worked. It's just it's it has not... I, either it's been harder to get leads, or if you can get them, the conversion rate is just as much lower. And, and you know, partly it's tracking, partly it's just the kind of buyer intention. Yeah, man, uh, there's somebody interrupting uh, me while I'm looking at my friend's new cat or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, so Christy, you had another person? I do, if we still have time. I have a, sure. another one. So um, Owen asks, what are some tips or tricks to appear more genuine when meeting with potential students? Uh, he's having trouble appearing authentic because he's trying to project excitement and enthusiasm, but he feels he's coming off as sales pitchy. Well, don't appear as anything. Just be. Scott, this is one for you, hey? Yeah, I think anybody that tries to be something or somebody they're not is going to lose. So. The best advice, and, I, and I've managed a lot of reps, hundreds of reps in the past 25 years or so, everyone was different. And the first rule is be yourself. Um, you know, use your personality. Put yourself into the presentation. Yeah, we all know it's a sales job, but if we do our job right, then it's the prospective student that sells themselves 
on why they need to go to school. And we do that by asking probing questions, open-ended questions. Uh, don't forget, for, uh, it could be, the, with, our, with our demographic, it could be the very first time that somebody really, really got into that person's head and asked them, hey, how do you really feel? What are your dreams? What are your goals? You know, so put yourself in their place. When was the last time that somebody asked you how you really felt about something? rather than passing them in the hall at work, hey, how's it going, good morning, how you doing? You know, for the first time, somebody is really, really getting into their head and caring about them. And the only thing that you have to project is that caring attitude. You don't have to do a rah-rah or cheerleading uh, uh, songs or skits or whatever. It's just projecting that you really care. There's an old saying somebody told me a long, long time ago, it's hokey, but it's true. Nobody cares what you know. Nobody, yeah. They know if you care. Something like that. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Nobody so cares Tom, what you know as long as they know that you care. There we go. Tom, uh, I think what Scott's getting to is it's, it's really more about in, intention versus skill in a way, hey? Absolutely. And that's why also we utilize scripts. Uh, that are tested and true uh, to keep people from being more than what they are and also why we encourage DOAs, school owners, uh, to do training and role-playing with their reps. Uh, if you follow the right script that's, that's professional but get, but got the key words that are needed to build that relationship and bond and the key questions, not a guideline, not letting the reps just come up with their own thing. You're going to be compliant, you're going to be correct, and you won't be something that you're not. Okay, cool. I think we have time for one more uh, question, hey, gang. Um, so if anyone wants to hit star six and chime in, you can. Or, Christy, I think you had one more question, hey? I do. So um, Eve asked about the HR question, and she mm -hmm. has a follow-up. She asked, "Is going to HR does going to HR work better than speaking with a CEO or other exec? So basically, should she go to the HR department, HR people, or should she start higher?" Um, I'm always a one to start at the top as high as you possibly can, but uh, VP HR, the strategic HR person. Um, if it's a smaller organization and there's an HR administrator, uh, then I would go to the CEO uh, or the C, probably more the COO, um, to the C-level person who oversees HR uh, might be a good spot to start, depending on the size of the organization. So, um, Okay, gang, so we're five minutes over. Uh, we're going to have some some quick assessments to do for you guys. We're going to see who the first five people were. Um, and I think we'll end this call, and we're going to do this again. So uh, thanks, everybody, for jumping on. And any other questions, just give us a call, and we're happy to clarify for you. And in the meantime, on behalf of uh, my colleagues here uh, at Enrollment Resources, have a productive day. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, innovations in enrollment management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com.